0: welcome to the future christian podcast your source for insights and ideas on how to lead your church into the 21st century at the future christian podcast we talk to pastors authors and other faith leaders for helpful advice and practical wisdom to help you and your community of faith walk boldly into the future now here's your host lauren richmond jr Welcome to the Future
1: Christian Podcast. This is Lauren Richmond, Jr., and today I'm welcoming Rohadi Nagasar. Ruhadi's latest book is When We Belong, Recre- Reclaiming Christianity on the Margins from Herald Press. Ruhadi writes and speaks on the topics of decolonizing, liberation, and deconstructing Western Christianity. He has his own podcast, Faith and a Fresh Vibe. He has planted two churches, including an inner-city multi-ethnic expression called Cypher Church, he has also written extensively in the area of missions and church leadership, including his book, Thrive, Ideas to Lead Church in Post-Christendom, which we'll be talking about today. He lives in Canada on Treaty 7 lands, otherwise known as Calgary, and holds a business certificate from Mount Royal College, a BA in Economics from the University of Calgary, and an MDiv from Canadian Theological Seminary. You can find out more about him at rohati.com and find him online there too. So welcome to the show. All right, welcome to the show, Rohati Nagasar. Thanks so much for being here. Uh, anything else you'd like our listeners to know about you?
2: Yeah, I'm. I'm situated north of you. I'm in Canada. Yeah, on what is traditionally Treaty Seven territory, or known as Treaty Seven territory in Calgary, and uh, which is situated three and a half hours north of the Montana border, and about an hour. East of Banff. So most people know where Banff is.
1: Hmm. Well, I don't think I've had, I've had a few folks from Canada, but I think you're the first one I've had from really outside the Toronto area. So yeah, uh, yeah. thanks for being here. Which is
2: far. It's like, uh, that's like a four hour flight. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Well, uh, share if you would with our listeners, um, share a little bit about your faith story, what that's looked like in the past and what that looks like today.
2: Yeah, I grew up in what I would call white evangelicalism. We didn't call it that then. Mm-hmm. So in many respects, the contemporary evangelical movement that's in the U.S., it's it's the same effectively mm-hmm. in Canada. We, we borrow everything. Yet uh, evangelicals are um, a much smaller percentage of the population here, so there's less political clout, there's less cultural influence, Canada is more of a post-Christian sort of world. Um, it would mimic some of the larger inner cities in America in terms mm-hmm. of religiosity. So the, the first half of my life, that's that was my place in space. knew all the songs, uh, heard all the sermons, read all the books, same mm-hmm. books. So that formation looked very similar if you grew up in that space. Uh, then I went to seminary, after university, went to seminary, and realized there was something going on. There was a problem in terms of of what I named at first, mission. So mm-hmm. I knew that the church seemed to be incompetent at connecting with people that didn't look like it, or at least the churches that I was associated with. Yeah. It was a deeper question than that, that I realized now, even 10 years after the fact, or 15 years after the fact, that I was trying to figure out how I could, as a multi-ethnic person, belong ultimately in church spaces, in predominantly white church, where I was situated, uh, white church spaces. That was the question. Um, But initially, I was using language around mission. So today, I would situate my faith outside of institutional boundaries, outside of evangelicalism, um, more connected to uh, faith traditions that operate at the margins mm-hmm. of culture. Uh, there's no black church influence here, but uh, black church or black theologians, uh, liberation theology, all these pieces that often were chided as being too liberal, or left, right. uh, are the ones that are, in fact, uh, resonating with me because they speak to my space and how I situate myself in the world. Um, and faith and church-wise, as a church planter, which no one would use that terminology, but that's what makes sense, I think, for your listeners. Yeah, uh, yeah. I've spent now the time of trying to build a more inclusive across all spectrums, including ethnicity. So more multi-ethnic, more inclusive to disabled folks, more inclusive uh, to uh, LGBTQ uh, folks, how to build and curate and just rest in those types of community spaces. And So that's kind of where I'm meandering now in a slow and simple and small way.
1: Yeah, awesome. Thanks for sharing that. Uh, Share, if you would, like a spiritual practice,
2: something that's meaningful for you now? Yeah, you know what I've been becoming more alert to right now? um, and Not right now, but over a number of years, and especially poignant once the pandemic struck, but I've been into aspects of somatic healing, hmm. which is just a fancy way of saying being more attentive to my body. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the spiritual or even, you know, body practices of trying to be more in tune with what's going on in myself. Because we, we and by we, I mean, uh, you know, contemporary Christianity. Um, yeah. So evangelicals, Protestants, mostly. We're really good at the thought exercise and figuring things out in our head, but we dissociate our body in many respects from ourselves. We treat them as a separate thing. Um, We haven't been taught how to love ourselves as the commandment goes, to love our neighbor as ourselves. But we, we, we don't even know how to do that to ourselves and to our own bodies. So there's a lot of learning there because... In my own formation, and, and maybe part of it growing up culturally as a man, that you dissociate from the things that you're feeling, the emotions that you might have, yeah. um, unless the emotion is rage or, or anger. Right. You know, right. You know, I get that. But so there are pieces there of, of learning and being more attentive to what is in many respects countercultural. Um, So yeah, somatic healing or, I don't think somatic theology is actually a thing, but uh, be more attentive to my body is something that I've engaged with over a number of years now.
1: Yeah, awesome. That's awesome. Thanks for sharing that. Um, So I I asked Rahadi to come on the show and kind of found you on Twitter, thought you had some interesting stuff to say. And I was like, hey, is there something, you know. Some work that I can interact with that we could talk about, and he he sent me his book Thrive, and uh, I really want to recommend folks for they can find it at your website rohani dot com right, mm-hmm. yeah, and I uh, really a, recommend checking it out. It's a digital download. You can easily read it on your phone or tablet or whatever
2: you're looking at. You can, a, reading you can buy a is, book but, of it.
1: Yeah, I think it's on Amazon. You can yeah. easily get it. But I thought we'd, we'd talk through some of the stuff you have in here, which I thought was really interesting. Uh, I, I made a lot of highlights, frankly, in my, my highlighting app, and I had to limit it here a bit for our sake of conversation timeliness. Yeah. Um, but the first thing that really stuck out to me, and I feel like it's – I don't know what what you think. Like a really um, main theme of the book is that you you kind of point out that common answers to church decline – are Christendom
2: centric? Yeah. um, I feel like the way that, again, things shift, right? So Mm -hmm. when I respond here, it's it's kind of a snapshot in time. And when I wrote this book, that was almost 10 years ago. Yet the applications remain the same in many respects. Mm -hmm. And that the churches often try to address their decline by just revamping what's inside Mm -hmm. incrementally. Um, And we don't have a lot of good input to self-reflect and say, actually the approaches that we keep on using, they just don't work. So just sort of changing the style of music, it's not going to work. Now, understand I'm operating out of my context, which is a preview where America is going, where, mm-hmm. which is probably where your big cities are at. There could be many smaller towns where the majority of folks have some connection to church and our, right. our church life and world that you could just change the music a little bit and that might work. Um, but at the end of the day, you're just rinsing and washing the same people. You're just stealing them from other churches, you know? right? it's like you managed to stay afloat or maybe you're even growing as a church, but you did that at the expense of all the churches closing around you. So I don't think that's really a depth strategy or even good mission. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I just listened to something the other day, um, a podcast the other day, talking about a report from Christianity Today, at least in America, mind you, that non-denoms had primarily experienced growth in the past from folks leaving a mainline context. Yeah. Yeah. And now they're getting growth from ex Catholics.
2: <laughs> yeah. Which is yeah. interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 And I did that, uh, that data work as well in my book uh, and looked at, uh, that's interesting because your trends in that article, I would assume are newer than my data, but the data that I was looking at was saying the same things and that effectively there Mm -hmm. was no denomination or tradition that was growing by adding new folks. It was Christian transfers, folks who were already churched. It was Christian immigration, which is how Catholic churches have generally uh, increased. So they are already Christian (laughs) and you just immigrated or births. So you just had enough kids within to keep things rolling, which right. I think the number is like three, 4%. You just have a couple of kids every year and the church can keep on rolling and you don't have to change anything. Right. And so when it comes to even evangelical churches who are supposed to be reaching out more than others, evangelicalism, or rather uh growth by evangelizing is actually one of the lowest factors that contribute to growth. Mm-hmm. So it's like, okay, so what are we actually doing?
1: Well, kind of to that point you made, what are we actually doing? I thought it was interesting that you, you wrote that oftentimes what happens is churches seek examples from quote-unquote exceptional churches. Mm. And I think this is kind of happens a lot in evangelical spaces where it's like, what's the, the growing hip church doing that we can replicate, like you said, music yeah, or whatnot? Yeah. So what do you yeah. see is the, the
2: problems of that? And, and this was, I, I, I feel like this is changing somewhat, but you always seem to, when, when I was sort of in the mix, and this was a long time ago, but you always send your pastors or maybe a denominational leader or your church planners to certain conferences, right? Mm-hmm. It's just like the same ones. And there was a kick there for a while where every single year, uh, leadership development was huge in and still is in evangelical spaces, and so you always went to leadership summit. Now you never heard of a discipleship summit, but you always went to leadership summit right right, so you always went to these church planting conferences to see and hear the stories of churches that were actually growing because that 's just wild like in our imagination that 's like, how are you doing this and so w- what happens is that you raise up all of these exceptional churches. And you can think of, the, the vast majority of churches are small. They're around 100. And yet we use these churches that have thousands of people, the megachurches, mm-hmm. and we use them as examples of what we can emulate and replicate. And the problem is, when you operate within a model that centers the consumer Christian model, right. which means that you try to deliver the best products and services, essentially, if we're talking consumerism, Mm -hmm. that if you're going to try to replicate the biggest and brightest, you better have a budget that can do the same. right? But the fact is you can't. So what are you going to do is that you're going to replicate, you're going to try at least these products and services, but you're going to be replicating them at such a poor level that by trying to do the same things, you're in fact going to alienate your own people who are, are... This could be a good thing, by the way. You'll alienate the consumer Christians within your community, and they'll just leave your community for the better show down the road. Right. Which is exactly what happens when it comes to churches that try to compete along the lines of trying to do the best kind of music or trying to offer the best Christmas show. Mm -hmm. Or try to... It's like you can't compete with one another. You better have something else that's going to ground you because replicating the ones that look great, it better come with a bunch of money too. And then it becomes a race to the top in terms of money. And that just dilutes right. everything. And that's its own problem. But we got to stop looking at all these churches from conferences, from books, from wherever, and try to look, I think, locally mm-hmm. within our context and and hopefully usually the neighborhood and and see what we can champion and learn from and collaborate with within that context yeah yeah that's good stuff um
1: something else that i, I thought was interesting uh you write about finding allies in the kingdom not just those with the same denominational logo so i don't know what it's like up in canada um Certainly in the States, denominationalism is very much on the decline. Even still within denominations, depending on the denomination, there can very much be like a, hey, we only work with our own or those yeah. very much like us. I found your, your approach refreshing, and I'm curious you know, what brought yeah. that about.
2: Uh, Well, when you don't have, uh, first off, when you don't operate within denominational boundaries, then you better try to find other people to collaborate with because you don't have your own people to begin with. So, there are positives here in that you would have some type of network behind you within the denomination. But if you're only looking to church plant, and I'll use that as an example, church plant, Mm -hmm. uh, church plant within old paradigm, then you would typically just uh, try to grow the denominational banner, right? Whereas, if you approach missions through a lens of trying to incarnate Christ in the neighborhood, then it becomes more expansive in terms of what you're trying to achieve, and that is you don't care who gets the credit, you don't really care who you're collaborating with. You're looking to join God where God is already at work in the neighborhood. Or the city uh, doesn't matter of what stripes an organization is wearing. So, mm-hmm. in many respects, scarcity produces a state where you have to find different ways and innovative ways to collaborate with other organizations trying to do the same thing. Um, maybe your denomination, or maybe your approach is that you just refuse to <laughs> collaborate with. Uh, any non Christian organizations again that 's way too narrow but but at least that extends past uh denominationalism
1: mm-hmm.
2: I would take the approach through the lens of who is just trying to do good things in the neighborhood mm-hmm. right because God works God is not confined to the church that's would be ridiculous to think that God is in fact at work beyond in in the world, with or without the permission of the church,
1: yeah, of course. yeah.
2: And so it's up to us to try to respond and and find where God is at work and join. And and our posture as church it comes from the the top. Unfortunately, it comes from the place where we we're, we're used to being the boss all the time. People come to us for answers, right? We don't have a good posture of humility, where we realize that there's a lot of other organizations or people who have more expertise and are doing things better than the church, especially when it comes to building goodness and hope in neighborhoods. So if the, if culture for cities and towns are changing in a way that the folks are no longer defaulting to find a church, to find the answers to life's questions then the church ought to shift to accommodate that cultural shift rather than just waiting for people to come to it, which is generally the, the it, that's still stuck in our DNA.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it really speaks to the Christendom-centric uh, ideology, whatever the word is, that yeah. you, you, you speak about, is that I think most churches still think like if someone's going through a crisis or need of some support, like, Church is like the first thought for people, and if I understand you right, you're arguing, and I would certainly agree, that
2: that's, that's not, no longer the case in, in many contexts. It would be nice. I, right. I mean, it would be nice, but what we find general, this is, I'm painting with too broad of a brush now, but what we find is many churches uh, have lost their way in terms of being the parish church, mm-hmm. of, of mm-hmm. being that neighborhood church. Where people would uh, seek it out for, for help. Um, many churches carry with them a lot of baggage now. There's a growing mistrust with the church in general, right? right. So, what do we have to do to, I wanna say, change hearts and minds, but to do better and to pr- have better practices that aren't situated within the closed confines of the church walls?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I don't, I'm not sure how to ask this question, but because I, f- I think the answer would be no, but how do current structures or do current structures, or can, this is the question, can current structures accommodate the necessary shifts that need to happen? Or do you think the structures themselves yeah. need to change entirely? I mean,
2: yeah. So, you you already know the answer, of course, <laughs> right? It's like, can the church change? And the, and the answer is yes and no. Um, the only way institutions can change is through incrementalism. And that is just a fancy way to say very slowly over a long period of time. So it is possible because we do see institutions. Well, <laughs> maybe actually we see institutions most often just die, yeah. which makes a lot of sense. So are they built to do that, however? And the answer to that is absolutely not. Institutions yeah. are designed for self-preservation, They're designed to keep things the same, and they're designed to, in fact, reject those who try to push it into a new space, which is sad because one of the gifts of the church is the voice of the prophet, and yet most traditions do not have space for the prophet. The prophet has to, (laughs) just like scripture, has to go into the desert and hang out, and they're just sort of off the rocker, and we don't trust them, and we would reject them anyways because they speak truth to power. And right now there is a preservation of power and that's Mm -hmm. what institutions do rather than a way to divest itself from power for the sake of the expansive kingdom in our midst. So there is no change. I don't think um, readily possible. It would take, I think um, new ideas, new folks operating either outside or at the edge of inside, Mm -hmm. to give input, uh, to give insight for denominations or the institution of new possibilities. So, which is to say, uh, we'll use church planning as an example. We've often thought, okay, we'll just let those people, those church planners who don't want to keep things the same inside the church we'll let them go out and maybe we'll learn something from them and they'll change things up a little bit that's still incrementalism and mm-hmm. i think that every church should if you're big enough why not cleave off 150 people and drop them into a different neighborhood uh that's a transplant not necessarily mm-hmm. a plant but but makes sense what i'm saying is we need a total reimagination of how to do church and how to be christians in a new city and in a new culture. And in order to do that, we need to fund, I think, because oftentimes it's a money question, right. is it we need to fund, rather than six figures for the traditional church plant, why not fund 10 people who are doing interesting things in their neighborhood in totally different ways than we would ever consider even something as church as -hmm. a church expression why not fund 10 at a tenth of the price and see what works and what sticks so there's just a a a need for a radical reorientation of how we cultivate innovation within denominations and it's and and some are, are kind of going in this direction especially those that are facing the brink yeah we need to figure out okay um (laughs) <laughs> throw as much as we can at the wall, see what sticks, and then maybe develop around there. Um, otherwise, I don't think the institution has a hope to make any sizable changes in time for it to save itself. And I think of many mainline traditions. I mean, if you look in Canada, mainline traditions that have lost 90% of members right. over 50 years, like they're they're dead in another generation. Right? So yep. evangelicals think of themselves as resilient. But well, there's really not a lot saying that you're going to not wind up in the same place in 50 years. Yeah, so yeah, let, let's try to do something that just doesn't center the cathedral model where people just come to the Sunday service. Do something doesn't have to even be big. Like try something where you're really uh, bankrolling new innovative ideas and people. And then use the information that they produce as input of how you might uh, shift the organization or or just continue funding these off-the-wall ideas because we're not going back to a place where everyone just casually returns to a Sunday morning service. Mm-hmm. Like COVID should have also caught uh, or sort of, sorry, Halved, right? The number of people who thought I need a Sunday service, like, have has your church come back to pre-COVID levels? <laughs> like, many haven't. No, so it's just an indicator of what is to come, mm-hmm. and we ought to then figure out what might be the next or multiple next things to try to match how quickly culture is shifting beyond us, rather than trying to call people back to something they probably won't.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I appreciate that. I think the PCUSA, the Presbyterian Church here in the States, has done something to that effect where they'll give out, um, I want to say it's like $10,000, I think, to someone who's doing something innovative or new churchy. And if I read your bio right, you have a, a business degree background. So I imagine this will kind of make sense to you. You know, the idea of like, throwing all your eggs in one basket and hoping there's a lot of pressure, obviously, you know, if you're throwing six figures out or monies at one project, like that's got to work. And
2: yeah. Yeah. And you have your systems for that and you you have your assessments for that. Right. Right. So we know to do that and sometimes it works. Right. Mm -hmm. So that's fine. That's one thing. As you said Um, in the book, I, give the story through a business lens because I don't think businesses, uh, you know, those types of corporate institutions can change either. So what they do instead is they try to uh, pivot and and create these offshoots Mm -hmm. from them. And so they can respond because that's the other thing with institutions. They can't respond uh, to, to um, immediate problems quickly it takes it forever to shift. For example, a lot of uh, white churches, how do they respond to George Floyd and, and just the movement that sprung up from there? Mm-hmm. Very few didn't because they were just trying to figure out like, how do we, how do we d- pivot? And the institution is not designed to do that. So, yeah, the, the example of trying to do $10,000 uh, to the small thing, the only thing, so I see that quite often, what's missing, however, the crucial factor here is time. And Mm -hmm. so we run out of patience, and so that's uh, the institution runs out of patience uh, far shorter uh, than it than it should. Yeah, which is to say, you need that ten grand for a decade. Yeah, that's what you need. You need that patience because if you're doing it for one, two, three years, you're not going to get the results in this post-Christian world mm-hmm. assuming results is what you're after right um, right yeah that's a good question good point uh something
1: else i want to have you talk through is in the book you talk about uh spiders versus starfish and then the the spiderfish church can you talk through kind of those three different models
2: um yeah so i just sort of alluded to it with the business idea and this is popularized, I think, um, a business writer, Ori Braffman, and then Alan Hirsch, who I think many folks in the missional church world would know. And he uses the example of starfish and how if a starfish loses its appendage, it still has the DNA to create a new starfish. Mm-hmm. Whereas the spider, if you lose its head, then the whole organization collapses. Mm -hmm. And most churches are spiders in that they're heavily dependent on the charismatic, the one charismatic leader. And when that leader kind of goes, then the church goes with it. And what we've done in terms of building towards charismatic leaders or in one place is that we have not, A, we have not released people to be the hands and feet uh, uh, unto God's unfolding mission. Um, and and we've really detracted from the priesthood of all believers, which as good Protestants, <laughs> as good Protestants, we should believe. Mm-hmm. But in practice, we don't do that. So the the starfish model comes out. And so what I su- suggest is actually we we need a combination in many respects, and this is through my uh, experience at least, in that we can't just go completely flat. In, or, in our organization, in communities or churches, there is a sense of leadership. Mm-hmm. There still is. So we definitely need to be intentional with imparting uh, DNA into all folks to be okay using their gifts and abilities for the sake of joining God in the unfolding kingdom, um, for the sake of building the church. Everyone has those. Uh, yet we don't release people to... Go and live out their gifts. We don't do it well, rather. So we need that. But at the same time, there, there still needs to be a component where there's shared leadership or, or, or rather, there is leadership. Mm-hmm. Um, and I use the example of you know, top heavy churches, the typical churches versus very flat house churches and very flat house churches the knock is they'll never get anything done or they can't do really big, important things because they can't mobilize enough resource or uh, they can't centralize themselves temporarily uh, towards uh, a a single focus. So I think there's a combination there that's required in my own church planting. If you just let people, uh, you know, figure it out for themselves, it's like, Oh yeah, mission, just like whatever you want, go do it. Folks won't do it. Hmm. And so there is intentionality behind uh, forming and shaping Mm -hmm. folks uh, to both respond and identify spaces they can live out their gifts. Mm -hmm. um, But also, and this is the key, how they might replicate and do so in their own space and, and build those skills and abilities in other people. That's the replicating factor that the starfish, uh, the power of the starfish model. And that's where the vast majority of churches fall flat in that, boy, we, could, we can disciple a bunch of people who come to the, a class. We'll do that all day, right? Mm-hmm. But will those people go and disciple other people? And that, that's the challenging part. So, yeah, there's, there's a, a mix there in terms of organizational development and what it looks like. Leadership is still important but it's definitely not in the top heavy way we're used to. It's definitely doesn't have to be the uh, one man or the one M div or the one accredited pastor. It can change. Like it, it can change who leads depending on seasons, mm-hmm. right? Which is a totally different kind of form of leadership right. than we're used to. So that's out there. And in many ways it, it reflects sort of the flatter way of, a a more organic way of of organizing our communities in a post-Christian context. Yeah. I like,
1: I like your idea of like leadership changing based on season. If I'm hearing you right.
2: Yeah. You know, I've, I've
1: I've often thought that like, I'm definitely a fan of leadership and appreciate good leadership. But I've, I've often thought like if one person is making all the decisions all the time, like that's a problem.
2: But yeah and you get paid to do that, right, and that's right. what the the paid clergy model mm-hmm. the you are assumed you do that stuff right right, and so you really got to work against the grain, especially if it's mostly Christians and people who grew up in the church, how they understand how the church should operate like that's really hard to change that mindset in that no, 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 you can do these things mm-hmm. yeah, but we pay you to do these things right. so why why would we and so i'm I've never Pulled in full salary. I've never even pulled in half salary. So there, there isn't a pragmatic space in our communities where I would do all things. Mm-hmm. You just can't. You have to do them. If you want to do them, you got to do them yourself right. or find a way for the community to come alongside that. Again, there's formation. You have to build that within the community. You can't just assume people will just sort of figure it out. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I mean, I don't have any... A uh, uh, notion around leadership development, but I'm just going to uh, suddenly lead doesn't usually happen that way. There needs to be empowerment and and some formation around it. But yeah, yeah, yeah. Great, great. Um, uh, something else I read in there that I appreciated
1: was you talking about proximity mattering with people and churches. So I don't know i I live certainly in the suburbs. Of the Denver, Colorado area and the metro. And I've gotten in this kick on YouTube of watching like urban planning and transit oriented the themed video. Oh, yeah, so I try yeah, to yeah. take light rail in my part of the world when I can um and kind of bemoan where I live um and driving yeah. everywhere. So I yeah. was intrigued by your model of proximity mattering. Talk mm-hmm. more about that.
2: Well, yeah. I would change parts of what I have written Mm -hmm. because um, I myself have changed in my approach to this because of COVID Mm -hmm. and what it's taught me in terms of inclusion for community, particularly around online. Mm -hmm. So I think given a choice, we would all would rather uh, hang out around the dinner table Mm -hmm. and do life together rather than, let's say, do an online service. Uh, I think there's just power in incarnational presence, Mm -hmm. of touch, of feel, of smell, of seeing one another. Um, But online, you can see one another, and it really enhances accessibility for especially disabled folks. So now my church is only online. Hmm. Uh, We still do in-person things when the weather's warm, but it's only online. And it stretches across two different cities primarily. Uh, but would it be better if everyone lived in the same neighborhood? It would be different. Mm-hmm. When I wrote this, I was sort of responding, critiquing what you have described. And that is yeah. our cities are definitely built around this inner city and suburban model. The suburbs in many respects, uh, lack vitality <gasps> because they lack services. They lack, um, Density, they're racialized, and so there are, there are a lot of problems. I'm pressing against. I think commuter church. Um, I don't think there's power in that. I think it's it's more it's pragmatic versus it's a good reflection of incarnational presence. I remember having a conversation with the pastor at a mega church, a mega church in in Canada is like a few thousand it's not like the us or it's like 10 or 100,000 and he said it was a good thing he he th- thought it was an uh an indicator of of deep commitment that people had to commute to one another for 30 minutes <laughs>
1: mm-hmm.
2: and i'm just like yeah, are you for real you think that my time is better spent in my car driving 30 minutes to a service to be with anyone that that's indicative of my, yes, it is commitment. Absolutely. Right. right. But that our time is better spent doing that than spending the 30 minutes, uh, eating together when we could just walk across the alley Mm -hmm. and we could be together in proximity. So that's what I mean by, by, uh, proximity matters. We have really elevated through that consumer church model this notion that you drive to the central place mm-hmm. and get your services and programs versus you could walk there, you could bike there, you could, it just changes life, you know, and that really presses against a lot of, of cultural pieces that yeah. are part of America. Yeah. They're a part of Canada too. Like we're just, if you live in the suburbs, you you got to live a different life. Yeah. Right? And a lot of it's in your car. Yeah. And that sucks. I can attest to that, uh,
1: unfortunately. Well, let me ask you here one, actually, kind of two questions, two part question, at least before we take a break. Um, you mentioned that, you know, in your churches that you've led, you've been not part time, not, you know, certainly not anywhere close to full time. Um, if I understand your bio right, you have an MDiv. So you've been to seminary, you've done that. What advice do you have for for pastors or church leaders who are like, hey, I need to try to figure out how to make this work financially, but also, um, you know, mm. I've got my education that I've got to pay for, whatever, whatever. Um, and then <laughs> let yeah. me ask it this way. You, you write Sometimes risk takers are left outside to freeze. How do we not get stuck outside in the cold?
2: Yeah. And I can say a lot of things because I have nothing to lose. Mm. <laughs> I've never had <laughs> anything to begin with. So it's easy to be like, "What are you doing? Like, you're not taking any risks." And for the pastor who doesn't have transferable skills, is in, has been in the pastorate for decades upon decades, thinking about risking the whole church mm-hmm. for the sake of a new idea—that's not like you got a mortgage to pay, mm-hmm. right? So I don't think that's happening. Which is why I would suggest be diligent with trying to fund even a small thing, but Mm. fund something that's an offshoot. Mm -hmm. Now, if you are that pastor who is risk-taking, who you have angst about what is happening within either your context, uh, it is isolating to be on the outside looking in. Uh, It's obscure, that's part of it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not a good part of it. Uh, the, like I started with, the prophets are pushed to the margins. They're sent to the wilderness. You'll meander the the wilderness and it's lonely, which is really crucial. Why it's crucial to find your people as you're venturing, whether they're in-house, in the church, maybe mm-hmm. not, in the denomination, maybe not, uh, maybe in your neighborhood, to find Cohorts along the way, or else you're going to be venturing alone. And that's not good. But to try to start new things in-house within con- I don't think you can. I don't and you might have high vision, grand vision to change what's on the inside. It's really hard to change the DNA of organizations once they're already established, yeah. including churches. Most often, if you want to try something new, especially if it's radical, you got to start with new DNA. You got to start fresh. You got to start brand new. Yep. Um, So that's the reality. And when you do start brand new, then yeah, you will be on your own in many respects. So I don't recommend venturing alone. I do recommend responding to calling and making big jumps for sure. Some of them are unnecessary. Some of them can just, again, test that small thing. But uh, as you do that, be sure to try to uh, surround yourself. And again, even online, right? That counts. To find your people who are asking similar questions, they're probably out there.
1: Well, this has been a great conversation. Um, Again, the book is Thrive. Check it out at Rohani's website. Let's take a break and we'll come back with some closing questions. All right, we're back with Ruhadi Nagasar, and thanks so much for your time. Really appreciate the conversation and your insights and ideas here. Uh, Have some closing questions. You can take these as seriously or not as you'd like to. So if you're Pope for a day, what would you like to do with that day?
2: Yeah. (laughs) Um, I guess I took this one serious.
1: That's good, too. for
2: the day. Um, what what could you do in a day if you're pope? Yeah. Or what could Obama do for eight years? Right. Did he solve racism? No. Like you can't move institutions in a day. <laughs> but in in this mythical world that you have posed, right? Uh, pope for a day, uh, I'd sell all the properties and uh, pay reparations. That's it. <laughs> That's a big day, then. That's a big day. It would be hey? Sign in, You'd be
1: signing. You'd be signing paperwork the whole day. Have. <laughs> Hand cramp, for it's sure.
2: That's okay. Yeah, okay.
1: <laughs> yeah. All right. Um, a theologian or historical Christian figure you'd want to meet or bring back to life?
2: Um, because we're... I don't know when you'll post this, so unfortunately I'll date it. Yeah, Sorry. that's fine. Uh, it's uh, uh, Monday was MLK Day. Right. In, in the U.S. Um, and so, yeah, maybe... The Reverend Doctor, because as I was reflecting on on his life, we're the same age. Hmm. You know, like, and part of that's like, and what have I accomplished? Yeah, but the other, but the other piece is like, and what would he have accomplished? So that would have been something.
1: Hmm. Yeah, that's good. Um, what do you think history will
2: remember from our current time and place? So you mean like broadly, like right now, this snapshot? Yeah, I kind of leave it open-ended on purpose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think there is going to be not a reckoning. We're going to get some more sense of the harm that COVID has caused, especially Mm -hmm. for those with long-term disabilities. Mm -hmm. That's going to come out and the way that we, and if you want to talk about institutions, how institutional think Around the pandemic response from many uh, med- chief medical officers, it it held on to old paradigm, and it just and this is everywhere. It's like not even places where the government was more right or left leaning, and everywhere I mean in the West, so Canada, the United States, um, we did such a terrible job in terms of public health messaging. Mm-hmm all over the place yeah. and and it just harmed so many people. And and I don't think we've grasped the magnitude of that harm. So I think that's the space uh, and, and the kind of a connection to that connection. Not really. Whenever I talk to Christians, my age, Americans, um, not Canadians, almost all of them. And it might be the circle I travel, but almost all of them speak to, uh, Trump as the catalyst that changed their faith. Hmm. And so that's a big piece of what was unleashed with um, all that Trump represented when he came into power. Yeah. Um, but I think that's going to be something historically we look back on, even within the church, and be like, wow, right. like, that catalyzed a lot of people exiting. Yeah. And it, then it solidified a lot of people. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. And, and entrenched them.
1: Yeah, certainly we're so, seeing that. I don't know what it looks like where you're at, but certainly in the States with Christian nationalism sort of being yeah. like the, the institutionalization of a, this whole mess.
2: Yeah, yeah. It, it's the permission to do what was already there. Right, right. And I don't think that it's necessarily been a catalyst to growth, mm-hmm. but like I said, it's entrenched a mm-hmm. particular way of thinking yeah. and polarized us. So, yeah, th- those are two big ones. That's interesting. I wish we had more time to talk about that. Um, what are your hopes for the future of Christianity? Um, I do have hope. So I just, my most recent book is When We Belong, Reclaiming Christianity on the Margins. And it's written to folks like me. And those who have been pushed to the margins by the dominant church traditions. To say that Christianity is a religion, it is a faith for those who are marginalized first. Mm-hmm. Like the, the, the last shall be first. <laughs> and so I have hope because I look at the upcoming generation that's even behind me and I see their, their, even their intelligence around mental health and somatic healing and just the theology that they're producing, the types of public theologians we have now. It's wild. I think like you're just like miles ahead where I was when I was your age. So that gives me hope when it when it comes to seeing new voices and especially voices from the margins, so usually racialized minorities um come into the center and start speaking uh renewed truth. Mm-hmm. That's to me that's exciting. Does that save institutional Christianity? Does that save the Presbyterians, the Evangelicals, <laughs> mm-hmm. the Pentecost—does it save them? No, no. Like, and I don't, I don't care if they're saved, right? Because I don't have a skin in that, yeah, any skin in that game. But I do see Christianity as a, as a movement. It's still rolling, mm-hmm. right? It's still expanding in places outside of the West where it's declining, right? So yeah, there's hope. Yeah.
1: Well, that's great. Thanks for sharing that. I think I'm remembering, I think you tweeted something not too long ago, something about uh, many interpreters of scripture only have done so from a place of privilege or something to that effect, right?
2: Yeah. Yeah. The Well, even our traditions in the West, mm-hmm. in America and the United States have come through the gaze of usually a white male right. Euro-centered gaze mm-hmm. of understanding scripture. And these are not people who've ever been subjugated by the state. Yeah. Yet the first three centuries mm-hmm. of, of the writers of the New Testament, of the early church, they were marginalized. And so it requires a certain perspective of the world to glean uh, the stories of Jesus of the, uh, as Jesus the subjugated in the process of being colonized by Rome mm-hmm. – jewish minority figure that he is right and it produces a different kind of christianity i think yeah. as well so yeah that it, that's a compelling thing for especially folks who've grown up in dominant right. or mainline or evangelical traditions that aren't black or orthodox uh there's just different ways of approaching our faith that we haven't even considered or fathomed yeah
1: yeah thanks for sharing that well uh Share if you would where people can connect with you, check out your work,
2: that kind of thing. I'm easy to find if you just Google Rohatti, Rohadi, R O H A D I. I have a podcast as well. I don't, uh, I have a newsletter. I don't blog as much, but I do have a newsletter on the website, Rohadi.com. And the podcast is Faith in the Fresh Vibe, where I try to chat about all things decolonizing Christianity. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. And my my latest book is, is when we belong, which came out may 2022.
1: Awesome. Well, I really appreciate your time. Really appreciate the conversation. I always leave folks with a, with a word of peace. So may God's peace be with you.
2: Thanks for having me.
0: And also with you. Thanks for joining us on the future Christian podcast to learn more about Lauren or the podcast visit future-christian.com. One more thing before you go. Do us a favor and subscribe to the podcast. And if you're feeling especially generous, leave a review. It really helps us get the word out to more people about the podcast. The Future Christian Podcast is a production of Torn Curtain Arts and Resonate Media. Our episodes were mixed by Danny Burton, and the production support is provided by Paul Romaglevitt. Thanks and go in peace.